This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. To receive a free copy of Bob Buford's classic book, Halftime, moving from success to significance, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host. Here's this week's interview by my partner, John Ramstead. All right, on this edition of the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have Randy Kenworthy. Randy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. Now, Randy is one of those guys that uh, everybody needs in their life. Randy, you've just been an incredible friend and mentor. And, you know, just to share with everybody out there, whenever I've had some big decisions to make, getting into coaching, um, looking at, you know, even before that, Randy, I talked to you about leaving my last company and going and, and helping uh, bring it, bring that other company private that was owned by the bank. And you're just one of those solid men who you just have just an amazing faith that I just trust when I go to. And also, Randy, your experience in just being an entrepreneur, starting at a young age, taking an idea and actually turning it into a profitable company that's having impact. And and Randy and I were actually having coffee uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was just sharing me as he's really been thinking about this process. And I said, Randy, you have to come on the podcast and share this. So everybody out there that has an idea, you're in a company, you're trying to grow a company, you're trying to do what you're doing and doing it and do it better uh, and know kind of the, the plan, the blueprint to move forward. You're going to love this interview so, Randy, I'd love for you to start out because a lot of people don't know you the way I do. And just uh, tell us a little bit about your story and your journey up to this point. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I'm uh, 56 years old, been married for 28 years, and I have one daughter, 25 years old, that recently graduated from Baylor and now has a job. I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, but I, you know, I've been very, very blessed along the way. I, um, uh, you know, when I was 19 years old, I got uh, I got hurt playing basketball, and um, you know it was a pretty serious injury, and I, I I had to had to go to work, and so I got a job uh, actually selling shoes part time at Sears in uh, Portland, Oregon, um, and and those were some good looking shoes too, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I figured out really quickly that you want to sell men's work boot boots, and you you want to stay out of women's shoes all entirely, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I, I certainly didn't want to go sell shoes, but uh, um, I couldn't go to school because I, I couldn't read. I, I damaged my right eye pretty badly. And uh, so I, I started selling shoes and, you know, long story short, um, ended up selling appliances and, you know, at 20, 21 years old was, was making a pretty amazing amount of money back in 1980-81 and decided that uh, I really wanted a career in sales. And, and so... Um, I, I just really decided to become uh, a professional salesperson and, you know, read everything I could read and went to every seminar I could go to and listened to every book and tape on anything related to sales, negotiation, presentation, communication, and that type of thing. And see, now you're dating yourself, Randy, cause that's how I used to learn too, is cassette tapes driving around in my car. And a lot of people listening don't even, uh, that that's like something in a museum at the Smithsonian nowadays. Oh yeah, yeah, that's very old school, and um, and so um, you know, ended up uh, ended up doing uh, doing very well in sales. I uh, was very blessed in, in that career, and um, 
Sears uh, ultimately in about 1982-83 opened up the Sears Business Centers, which was the first microcomputer retailer in the United States. That was kind of the dawn of the of the Apple, you know, the Apple One, which was a kit computer. I sold a bunch of those and the original IBM PC and Compaq and you know uh, again names that a lot of people may not even know anymore. But um, that's how I got into the personal computer industry and. Um, you know, over a 20-year period in, in the computer industry, um, you know, I ended up uh, founding or was part of the executive team that founded six companies. We sold four, took, uh, took one public, and, and I augured one into the ground so hard there were small pieces of shrapnel over about a, a two-mile two area. <laughs> um, you know, so, but, but it's, it's just been a fantastic journey, and it's been a great ride, and you know, the first company I founded, I was 27 years old. It was called Connex Corporation, and it was a sales and sales management training company. And at that time, uh, that, was, that would have been 1987, 1988. Um, at that time, the personal computer industry was really kind of morphing from a hardware business to a services business. And the industry was having a hard time making the shift from selling hardware to selling services. And so I custom wrote to a training curriculum and uh, was really one of the first training companies to put engineers in sales training with salespeople so that they could learn how to go on a sales call and they could joint sell um, these services. And over a four-year period, we trained about 7,000, 8,000 personnel all over the world for the biggest computer companies in the world. We we did work for Apple, Compaq, Hewlett Packard, NCR, um, Heath Zenith, Group Bull, uh, you name it. We probably trained their salespeople. Um, and then we sold that company. And then I ended up, um, you know, as part of, uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, founding teams or, or founder of, of a handful of software and services companies. Um, so, one of those, uh, I went in as the executive vice president of sales and marketing was uh, tickets.com. And I was in that very early. Uh, that company went public eventually. And then I was uh, recruited in as vice president of sales for um, you know, a company here in Boulder. We had about $16 million of, of venture capital in the deal and, and ended up selling the company for about $285 million in 16 months. Um, so... So it's uh, it's been a great ride, and and uh, currently um, I uh, I run and own a company called Coachman Energy that we founded ten years ago, and we're an upstream E&P company. Uh, we drill oil wells in North Dakota, Colorado, and uh, Kansas and Nebraska. And the the thing that you know, John, you and I were talking about that that I, I, I really hope to kind of communicate to your audience today that I, I hope adds value is that it doesn't matter if it's training and development, it's computer software, computer services, oil and gas. There is, an, a, there is a process, you know, that you can use to, you know, launch an idea from nothing and, and grow it into something to the point where you can get ready for market expansion and, you know, I've done it now multiple times in, multi, in, in different industries, and, and that process does exist, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful today that we can communicate kind of the core, you know, components of that process. 
Yeah, and that's what I'm excited about because, you know, as people are listening, right, the different companies, the different backgrounds that you've been in, I mean, they're all over the map. And if you actually look at my my career, it's very similar. If you look at the, the industries that I've been in, they are many and diverse. And I agree, there are definitely some core concepts, you know, from taking that, you know, I have this idea or maybe they have an idea and they already have a company formed around it, but is it really... You know, are they taking the right approach? And I think that's where a lot of business owners struggle is almost because, you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, they're kind of new at being an entrepreneur and running a business. And we hear about some of these huge success stories, you know, where people just had the right idea, the right time, and they took off. And what I think people don't realize is uh, as you study these people, they've had some amazing mentorship and counsel they've had experience, you know, sometimes it might take them 20, 10 or 20 years of hard work to become an overnight success. And people, uh, you know, you need to look into what was what was learned during that time frame that we can take away as entrepreneurs. Uh, because, you know, as you know, Randy, this audience, you know, we want to be doing good through doing business, having an impact for the kingdom. And I feel personally like my calling is to use all my gifts, talents and skills uh, that God has given me in the marketplace. That's where I've been called to do, not in the church, not in other areas. And I'd love for you to share, you know, Pete, you know, the the folks that are out there, um, you know, in, in as you work with entrepreneurs, where, where do people start? Yeah. Well, it, you know, I think, um, you know, first of all, entrepreneurs are, are honestly a rare breed. And I mean, it, it, it does take a special person, you know, to step outside of your comfort zone and go start something with no safety net. And I think also, too, that faith is incredibly important in that. Um, you know, you, you've got to have faith that, that God's going to lead you and that he's going to step in and, and, and bless what you're doing. Uh, I think that's a real important piece of it. Um, Hey, you know, and Randy, when you, you know, when you've had to make some of these big pivots and I know, you know, some of these pivots were probably far outside of your comfort zone. What do you think helped you to, to do that when other people might not have? Um, you know, I, again, I think it's the understanding of the process, right? So, um, and, you know, bottom line is, is at the end of the day, you know, if you're going to go start a company, um, and, and you fear failure, you know, that, that's probably a good thing to a degree. Um, you know, what, what's interesting is, is your view of failure, right? So failure to me is learning and, and that's how you have to view failure. Failure is, is a process by which you learn. And, you know, there's this concept that's been hatched here over the past few years called effectual entrepreneurism. And that's really a great framework for, for what we've done over the past, you know, two and a half decades. Um, you know, all entrepreneurs basically start the same way. Hey, I've got an idea. You know, I've recognized a problem that needs to be solved or an opportunity. Um, and, you know, the, all these things start the same way. You know, I've got an idea. So you go call a couple friends, you know, like, like uh, you and I have done over the years. And um, you go have coffee and you sit down and say, hey, I've got this idea. I've identified this problem. And. I've got this idea. I think I can solve the problem. And, you know, solving the problem is valuable. That's a very important piece of this. Um, if, if solving the problem you've identified is not valuable, you're not going to get any traction. You're not going to be able to build a company around it. Mm -hmm. but, but these things all go the same way. 
you know, hey, I've got an idea. I, I've got a big problem I can solve. The problem is acute. People have a lot of pain around it. Solving the problem is valuable for them. And here's, you know, here's how I'm going to solve the problem. So it all starts out that way. And so you go talk to somebody and, and you know, the person you're speaking with looks at you and says, wow, that is a fantastic idea. Have you thought of, you know, X, Y, and Z? And, uh, you, you know, you look at them and go, wow, no, I really haven't thought about that. So you think about it, you refine, you know, your solution to the problem and you go have the next cup of coffee. And, you know, the thing you got to understand about this is it's not a straight line, first of all. It's really kind of a concentric circle that starts out very small and gets wider and wider and wider and wider and wider as you go through this process. So almost like this spiral that just keeps growing out. That, that's exactly right. Instead of spiraling in on yourself. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's a spiral out. And so you, you go through this process and... What happens is you go from this initial concept and this idea, and then you go through this refinement phase. And the refinement phase has a lot to do with kind of primary and secondary research. Primary research is going out with, you know, people that you think may have expertise in the market sector that you're targeting or the problem you're trying to solve or, you know, friends or mentors that, that you think might have expertise. And so you're constantly vetting this problem. Right. And your and your solution to the problem. And what's really fascinating about this is that as you're vetting this thing and you're discussing it with people, you are literally on the fly refining your product or service. You know, you're offering to solve this problem and it moves very, very quickly. And so sooner or later, you get to a point where you've gone through this definition and refinement process. And. You know, now it's time to actually configure a solution. Well, you talked about primary and secondary refinement. What, what's the secondary refinement look like? Um, primary and secondary research. So oh, I mean research, yeah. Yeah, so your, your primary research is going to be, you know, conversation, subject matter experts, friends, that type of thing. Your secondary research is predominantly going to be the Internet, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, back in the old days, um, when I founded my first company, the Internet didn't exist. So you had to actually go to the library, um, you know. And so, you know, with the Internet, you can get on the Internet and you can find just an amazing amount of information, you know, that will help. Um, you know, so but the, but the main point is that, um, you know, there there's a school of thought that says that, you know, once you have an idea, you have to go out and define your target market sector you have to have an idea of what your ideal customer profile looks like, exactly who you're going to sell to. You have to know what your price point looks like. You have to know what your competition looks like, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I never in my life have operated that way. And I've always felt kind of outside the box, a little strange at times because I would go, I would go and present my ideas to investors and whatnot over the years. And they'd ask these questions and I would, be like, well, I've got an idea. I think it's this and this and this, but what's really important here is here's the big problem, right? This is a big problem. And, you know, I, I used to ask myself, if the problem doesn't get solved, who gets fired? Because, mm. you know, I want to solve problems, again, that are acute. Because if, if, there are, if there are serious consequences to not solving the problem, that's going to enable traction for my, for my product or my, my service. That's a great question. The problem doesn't get 
solved, who gets fired. And I'm thinking, you know, what you just shared is pretty counterintuitive from what a lot of us have been taught through the years and uh, about kind of the process to take an idea and, and bring it to market. So I'm, uh, I love where you're going with this. Yeah. Well, again, in this kind of framework of effectual entrepreneurism, um, there, there's also a couple other things that are really interesting and that we've done over the years, which is the, the other concept is called acceptable loss. So, um, you know, as you're going through this process, you know, you, you start out, you have an idea, you want to define and refine the idea, you know, then you get to a point where you now want to configure a product or a service. And now I'm looking at, you know, what, what, do, what does my product or service have to look like to solve the problem? You know, it's back to the old feature function benefit story, right? Mm -hmm. What features do I have to have? What function do those features, you know, present to a, a potential user? And really, what is the hardcore benefit of, of that feature? And so in this, in this framework that we've been using now for, you know, again, probably the better part of 25 years, a um, couple concepts that are, are pretty important. One of them is this concept of acceptable loss. You know, we've all been taught that, when you start business, you can't lose money, right? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that education costs money. I don't care if you're going to high school, you're going to college, you know, you're going to graduate school. I don't, you know, you're, you're going into a trade school. Education costs money. Or yeah, or even if you hire a coach or join a mastermind group or take an online course. But, and I, you, know, you know, this is a great point because I think one of the reasons, you know, as I've started what I'm doing, Randy, over the last two and a half years, I have invested heavily in my education to become an expert in what I'm doing. And a lot of people I've seen who have not been willing to do that, uh, they're nowhere close to the results that they were trying to get going into it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so if you, if you look at this differently from an entrepreneur standpoint and say, you know, I'm going to identify this problem, I'm going to research it, I'm going to understand it, I'm going to now configure a product or a service to solve the problem. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that product or service. My next step is I'm going to take it out to market. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, within that concept of going to market, now this is where you start to have kind of an acceptable loss um, thought pattern because I'm going to go build a product. The other concept here, which has not been popular in the past, but we've always operated this way, which is I want to I want to build a product that has the absolute minimum feature set, whether it's the minimum viable product concept. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so I want to put the least amount of capital and time into that product to get into the market to solve the problem. Now, what's what's also inherently important in this is that when when I when I kind of think of that you know minimal feature set, whether it's a product or a service, what I want is I want the most impactful features in that first version. I don't want the cheapest. I want the most impactful, right? So I've identified my problem. I've identified you know what I think the solution is. I've now configured my version 1.0, if you will. And I've put into that version 1.0 the features that are going to have the greatest impact on solving that problem. So what's an example of that to help people understand this even better, Randy? Um, well, I, I think, you know, I think if you look at, 
um, you know, my current business, Coachman Energy, um, you know, we identified when we started the company 10 years ago that the average retail investor had very, very minimal access to direct participation programs, meaning that there weren't a lot of investments that an investor could invest in where they actually were investing in oil at the wellhead. You know, they could invest in equities, they could invest in mutual funds or ETFs or, you know, different vehicles that would give them access, you know, that that was, you know, kind of under, you know, was the, the belly of it was oil. But the reality was, is it was all publicly traded and it really wasn't oil at the wellhead. And and so, you know, what we did was we put together our first investment program and we really targeted the two primary components that retail investors were looking for and still look for, which is tax benefit and a direct investment in oil. Because if you're directly invested in oil, oil is a natural hedge to the dollar. The dollar goes down, oil goes up. Oil goes up, the dollar goes down. I mean, they, they really act you know, in, in that type of, of relationship to each other. And, and the other thing, too, is there's significant tax benefits for drilling oil wells domestically in the United States. Now, there's certainly other bells and whistles you can put into any type of investment, but we really focused on those two things. And we focused on, you know, really making sure we drove tax benefit and really making sure that we were investing our investors' money in, you know, some of the best areas in the United States you know, and investing alongside the real big boys, you know, like, um, you know, Continental and Statoil, which is the state of Norway, and XTO, which is Exxon and whatnot, in the Bakken in North Dakota in the early days. And so, you know, that's a great example of, of how you have a really minimal feature set for a product, because an investment is a product, and going out and really positioning that investment um, against the other alternatives and really focusing on just one or two things. You know, and there's some important takeaways there too, because, you know, as you know, everybody out there is in all these different businesses and industries. And I know a lot of our listeners, but, you know, really taking some time to almost take a step back and, and I would encourage people to actually, let's do that research phase again Go out and talk to your mentors about what you're doing and who you're serving and 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 look what's out there and then and then see if what you are offering is a truly a high impact solution. And if there's gaps there in what that is and what other people offer in the market, now you now you have what you need to start tapping into the, the team that you have or your you know yourself and start to, to pull those two together. Cause when because I uh, I'd like to know where you're going next with this, but I think once you have cleared in really why those different impactful, you know, components are in that minimum viable product and what it means to the person that you're going to be offering that to is probably uh, a really key part of why some of the things you've done have succeeded and gotten some momentum and other ones maybe have, have not, they've kind of plateaued. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that's that's absolutely true. And you know that part of, part of that part of that the concept of that that minimally acceptable product or you know that product with with few features but has high impact. A, a, a big part of that too is as entrepreneurs is how we identify markets 
and and how we get to markets. And what's what's interesting over the years is the you know the first company I formed, um, I was I was very very fortunate to uh, to get Jerry White, who is the director of entrepreneurism at the Cox School of Business at SMU on my board. And, and Jerry and I have remained uh, close friends to this day. He's been an amazing mentor. And, you know, over the past 18 years or so, I go down to SMU and speak to his entrepreneurism class and occasionally the executive MBA class about these topics. And, um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate over the years because I've, I've probably seen, you know, like you, John, hundreds of business plans. And what's always interesting to me is every entrepreneur always has a billion dollar market opportunity. <laughs> and, you know, and myself included. Right. Yeah. You know, and and it's it's always fascinating to me when I go down to SMU and I talk and I walk in the room, especially the entrepreneurism class, because the entrepreneurism class is an open class that anyone can attend, you know, in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex for I think it's nine or ten weeks. And it's it's really how to start get a business started and the key things that, that you, you need to do. And in that class will be people that are thinking about starting a business or have a business and, you know, have a problem or they're trying to grow it. And I always, every time I go down, I say, is there anybody in the room that has a business that has a marketing budget above $500,000 a year? And over the 18 years, I think there's been three hands, right? Okay. Right. So, you know, as an early stage entrepreneur, you know, there's, there's two things you're, you're always very short on, capital and time, right? Yeah, no kidding. And, and so, you know, you've, you've really, you know, there's a couple tricks to this. And one of them is, is that you really have to narrow your market down. And we want to reduce that market down to what we believe are our top 100 prospects. And so, so to do that, what we do is we create an ideal account profile. And, and so, you know, if, if anyone listening already has a company and they're trying to get to the next step, the way you do this is you get your you get your staff in a conference room and you get those big, you know, um, what do you call them, flip chart paper, sticky notes, and write the names of your top six or seven clients, one on each piece of paper, and then start to I, try to identify the, the core demographic, psychographic, technographic attributes of each one of those clients. So are they primarily white collar or blue collar? Are they primarily web-based or do they have physical locations you know do you know what's their corporate culture like and just try and identify what the key attributes of each one of those clients you know is currently you know what are their revenues are they growing are they declining and then take a step back and see what the common five to seven attributes are and that now is your template going forward for prospecting for potential clients if you're talking to somebody and they don't have, you know, if you have seven attributes and they don't have at least three or four of them, then why are you talking to them? And and if you don't have a company, you need to do the same thing, only you do your market research. You know, you can identify your opportunity. You know what the problem is or the opportunity is. You know the definition of the problem. You probably have a pretty good idea of the market sector you're targeting and who has that problem in the market sector. And you're going to do the same thing. You're going to create, however, your top seven, you know, attributes or indicators of your ideal account to your ideal client. And um, as you go out and you start to make sales calls, you're going to constantly refine this until you get this baked into a template that you can then 
compare any potential client to and see if they match. And what's what's interesting about this is that if if you if you do this and you take a look at your target market, you can very quickly identify your top 100 um, you know client or prospect opportunities and stack rank them from one to 100 based on this criteria. Then we come back to each of those and we identify the five to seven key personnel inside each one of those companies or prospects that we need to talk to and influence. Yeah, and I want to throw something in there too because uh, I was a victim of not doing this and you know coaching so many business owners and even other coaches that are developing their practice. You know this. You know you th- you have this problem that you think you can solve and you think you can solve it for this mass of people that I can help anybody. And we started a data mining uh, software company, and what we were able to do was actually pretty. Um, it was a breakthrough software and Randy, you know what we did? We went and talked to anybody we get a meeting with, whether they were in the new com area, manufacturers, healthcare companies. And when the com, uh, when we had the crash, we were completely wiped out because we had no focus and we weren't entrenched where we should have been. Cause if we had gone through this exercise, um, you know what you know what would have come out looking at it in hindsight a learning point for me was our best customers our highest revenue was all in just basic manufacturing and if we had focused 100% of our efforts just in that vertical we would have absolutely survived the dot com crash and we would it would be a i think it would be a marquee company today but that's not what happened so what you're talking about is so important to really understand who is that what is that problem you solve? Who do you solve it for? And who is that ideal person, not only that that needs this solution, but also that you want to work with? Because you don't want to have a whole bunch of clients that you bring on board and you see them you know, call in or you have to get in touch with them and you're just you're like, oh, not again. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. You know, and if, if you're disciplined about this, it will save you an, an enormous amount of time and money. And again, as an entrepreneur, you, you know, your two, the two resources you have the least of typically are, are, are capital and, and time. Um, Why do you think people are afraid to narrow this down to 100 people that have some very specific criteria? Um, you know, I, I, I think it all comes down to um, not really focusing, you know, your 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 product or your service on a very, very specific problem. I think people perceive that, you know, the more the better, right? The, mm-hmm. the, and and the, the fact is, and I think you see it, John, in, in your coaching practice all the time, broad knowledge is not all that valuable. Deep mm-hmm. knowledge is extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and when, you, when you look at this concept, what it does is it gives you very deep knowledge of a market sector and the potential clients in that market sector. It also allows you to take your product or service and in its kind of minimal configuration to take it into that sector and apply it to a very specific problem that that sector is having. And that process is really kind of the fourth, you know, fourth, 
you know, phase of what we do, which is, you know, get out there and get your product into the market and now get your get feedback and go through that, you know, that refinement process and, and tweak your product along as you do it. And, you know, as you go through this again, you know, it's not a straight line. It's this, you know, these circles that get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and you learn more and you learn more and you have these points you come to and you pivot. You know, everybody thinks that you've got to start and you've got to know everything. And there's no way that you can know really very, you know, very little when you start. Right. Mm-hmm. You you learn it in an iterative fashion along the way by soliciting feedback every step of the way. And the you know, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, you know, well, gosh, I'm very small. We just started. I'm having to sell against some really big companies. And we have a concept, you know, that we've developed is how to sell big when you're little, right? Yeah. And it's very rooted in this, um, you know, identifying a target market and stack ranking these 100 companies because if I can identify those 100 companies and stack rank them, then I can I go and identify five to seven personnel within each company that – you know, are the economic buyers, the coaches, the recommender, recommenders, technical recommenders. And, and I can really identify the roles that those people are playing and who those people are. And now what I can do is I can market to those people. And, you know, the difference between sales and marketing and entrepreneurial land is very, very clear. Marketing is about creating a selling environment. Selling is about closing a transaction. And the worst thing as an entrepreneur is to walk into a prospect and slap your card on the table and the, the person that you're talking to, he or she looks at you and goes, wow, I've never heard of you, right? Yeah. And how do, how do you sell big when you're little? Well, with today's technology, it's very easy to identify 100 prospects and figure out who the five to seven um, you know, purchasers, buyers, economic decision makers are and then communicate with them. Send them emails. You know, use you know use the postal service. Uh, you know, go to the trade shows. Go to the mixers. Go to the things they go to. You know, think about that for a second. You have a hundred. You have a hundred companies, and you have seven contacts per company. So you got seven hundred contacts to manage. You can touch seven hundred people every day if you wanted to with today's technology, with very, very pointed and specific messages. Well, and the other thing, too, is, you know, you talked about developing this kind of the psychographic profile, right? A lot of the, you know, people that you and I both know in business here in Denver, they're very active in certain charities, certain causes, right? Education, wounded warriors, you know, things like that. So, you know, those are places, you know, causes that are in alignment with what you're passionate about as an entrepreneur, you know, find the ones that are also uh, in alignment with the people that you want to serve. And, you know, what? but there's this big, there's so many ways to actually go out, even if you don't have a Rolodex. Like I was starting my company after, you know, because of my accident, I hadn't been able to do anything for almost two and a half years. So I was starting from scratch. And so a lot of the things you're sharing, Randy, are they're just so powerful to allow people to just start creating momentum and, I would almost put it out like w- with what you said as a challenge, this lack of, you know, how do I touch that many people? Um, you know, how do I really develop relationships with these people? If you feel like you're not equipped, that is a limiting belief. 
And, and you need to flip that over to the other side of that, which is the liberating truth that you are perfectly equipped to actually grow a network rapidly and have authentic relationships with the people that you want to be working with. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, you know, this, this process doesn't necess, you know, doesn't require that you have a Rolodex at all. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, if you go back to the concept of what's really valuable to, to a, to anybody, you know, you think about relationships you have in your life. And if you're really honest with yourself, you know, the, some of the relationships that, that I think that I hold most dear in my life um, are because the person on the other end has some very deep knowledge about certain subjects. And again, deep knowledge and deep understanding is extraordinarily valuable. And if, if you're targeting a problem that has significant consequences and you can demonstrate quickly that you have deep knowledge and deep understanding of that problem, you're going to establish a value model very, very quickly. And, you know, to the point you just made too, John, one of the things, and this is also kind of one of our core tenets, is that, um, you know, entrepreneurs don't realize that really at the end of the day, your number one job is sales. Um, and, and most entrepreneurs don't want to hear that because, you know, we all have that image of Kurt Russell in the movie Used Cars, right? Where, yeah. you know, he's like putting a $20 bill on a fishing pole and throwing it across the street to the other car lot. And the guy chases a $20 bill across the street and he sells him a used car. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, sales is, is the highest paid profession in the United States. Um, and, if, if you're going to run a successful company, you, you better get very quickly in your head that sales is a very critical function and that as the entrepreneur and the leader, you have to have a very positive mental image about what sales is and you have to be willing to go out there and sell. Um, we have the saying, uh, it's you're the product. Entrepreneurs, one of the things entrepreneurs don't understand in the early days is that most times in the very early days, you're successful because of you, the entrepreneur. And so, you know, I, I hear a lot of entrepreneurs come, you know, will call or come to me and say, wow, you know, I can't hire anybody to sell my product. Um, you know, I, I hire professional salespeople. They last six, eight, 10, 12 months. They quit or I fire them and they just can't sell my product. And so, you know, I start asking these questions, which is, have you sold two product configurations, the exact same configuration? Have you sold any of your deals at the same price point? Have any of your deals not required any customization? And so, you know, as an entrepreneur, because you are, you're the subject matter expert, you understand the problem, you know, in a very deep fashion, you can go sit in front of a prospect and you can morph that product or service on the fly to meet the need in front of you. A professional salesperson doesn't do that and can't do that. And so when you look at the process, you know, you're, you're here in this fourth phase of the process. You're now in the market and you're actually selling your product to your top 100 and you're getting all this feedback, right? And, you know, what you really want to do is target these market maker clients and again, I'm going to say a couple things here that are very counterintuitive. When you first get your product in the market, if you have to give the product away to get those market maker clients to use your product, 
These are the names in the market that if their competitors know they're using your product, they're going to want to hear what you're doing. So think of McDonald's if you're selling French fry machines, right? So, you know, if you were selling fryers and you went to Joe's Burgers in, you know, um, Denver, Colorado, here where we live, you said, hey, you know, we're the world supplier for McDonald's French fry machines. You need to look at what we're doing. They're going to listen to you. Um, and as, as entrepreneurs, we get wrapped up in these couple points, which is just accept you are the product. Until you get that product fully baked, fully packaged, you've got uniform pricing, and you can replicate that sale time after time after time without changing the product configuration or the pricing. You're not going to be able to hire professional salespeople. Yeah, you know, uh, one of my mentors uh, – when he when he's talking to entrepreneurs, it's the same thing as you. You know what? You have to solve whatever problem you solve. You solve it for one person, but then you have to go because you know we all we're all creative and we love shiny objects, right? We're like, well, you know what? I'm going to solve a little bit different problem for a little bit different person because I think that would be interesting, and that's what you're talking about. This creates this conflict that that actually really inhibits your growth. You need to go find solve that exact same problem for the exact same kind of person a second time and a third time. And then when you, let's say you've now solved it for 10 people and you've been paid 10 different times. Now, now you actually have something that you're able to scale because you get to the point where I know exactly how to solve this problem for this ideal client. And I can go teach this to somebody else. So what, what you're sharing right now, Randy is a such an important point. And you know what? Uh, everything that we've been doing with the coaching I've been doing has been all custom, all custom work one-on-one. -on -one. There's no way early on that I could teach somebody else to join me and work with the people I'm working with and, and get clients the way that I have. And the last, and I just shared with you some of the huge victories we've had just recently, but because over the last six months, we've focused on how do we actually create standardized offerings that have definable outcomes with standard pricing. And it was actually through doing that, that our, our business just is literally tripled over the last three months. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the definition of, of, you know, startup from concept to market expansion is what we're talking about. You know, once you have a pro once you have a product that's in kind of steady state, it has the same feature, function, benefit, you know, same configuration. You've got a pricing model that works. Now you're ready to really expand your business and you can expand rapidly. And, you know, entrepreneurs have a, have a tough time um, accepting the fact that, th that you are the product as an entrepreneur. You know, it's, it's interesting as an entrepreneur when you go sit down with people because you, you have so much passion and enthusiasm about what you're doing. And that passion and enthusiasm just kind of radiates from you. And people pick up on that. And, and that's, in the early days, a lot of why entrepreneurs are successful. It, it oftentimes has little to do, honestly, with the product or service in the very early days. It has a lot more to do with people buying into the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur's vision and the entrepreneur's commitment. And, um, you know, the, the last thing I want to say about this, because I think it's a really super important point for entrepreneurs to get their head around selling, is... Buying and selling are the exact same process. They're just done from different sides of the table. And that's a great point. 
you know, and and my role as a salesperson, whether it's selling, you know, investments, you know, investors at Coachman or it was selling software, whatever I've done in my career, my role as a salesperson is to guide my client through their decision process successfully. You know, people think that it's, you know, you got to be a silver tongue devil and you got to have a ton of charisma and you, you have to be all these things. No, you have to understand the problem really, really well. You have to understand how your solution applies to the problem. And then you have to be willing to coach somebody through a decision process. Th- think of it this way. So you're, you've got the flu, you go into the doctor, right? Yeah. You, walk, you walk in the doctor's office and sit down. And the doctor walks in and goes, man, you don't look good. Uh, you, you look really sick. So see all those books you know, on the shelves behind you? Somewhere in one of those books is what's wrong with you. So if, when you figure out what's wrong with you, why don't you see my nurse? We'll write you a prescription, right? Yeah, you wouldn't go back. No, and <laughs> that's what a lot of salespeople do. They're there to take the order. I mean, what does the doctor do, right? He walks in, he looks, he goes, boy, you don't look good. He goes, here, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take your temperature, listen to your chest, maybe do an x-ray. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I might do some blood work. I'm going to do, I'm going to do all these diagnostics and I'm going to figure out exactly what's wrong with you. And then when I know exactly what's wrong with you, I'm going to write you a prescription. It's the exact same concept as a salesperson. When I'm sitting down in front of somebody who could use my product or service to solve their problem, my job is to understand what, you know, how, what, what, what form of the problem do they have? What symptoms do they have from the problem? How acute are those symptoms? What are they, what do they need to do to solve it? And how do they typically go about making these types of decisions? What are the steps? Who's involved? What are their roles? And my job is to guide them through that process. And, you know, the, the, the fortunate thing for, for entrepreneurs that really want, to, really want to embrace the sales side of this and they, they really want to get in and understand this, this is the very fortunate thing, is the bar is incredibly low. <laughs> because 99% of the salespeople on this planet don't view sales as a legitimate profession and they don't work at their craft. They, 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 don't, they don't do the stuff that we're talking about on this interview. My, I mentioned earlier that my daughter um, graduated from Baylor a couple of years ago. And, and so she graduates, she comes home to Denver. We're sitting out on the deck talking. I'm like, well, great. You graduated. Congratulations. Now what? Well, dad, I need, I want a job that I don't have to be in an office. I get to be out with people. I get to help people. I don't have somebody looking over my shoulder and I can make a lot of money. I said, you want a job in sales? And she was like, there is no way I'm going into sales. <laughs> no way. And so she is now a sales rep for a, a fairly a substantial tech company. And she's been doing it now for about a year and a half. And she's, she's in the you know, top third of reps in the country and, and, and loves it. And I have all these conversations with her. And, and uh, you know, the great thing about being young is you don't question a lot of things. You just go do it, right? Yeah. And, and so she's just gone and done this stuff. And, um, you know, her, her entire quota for, I think the last quarter was like three or $400,000 and she did $300,000 in the month of August. 
And so, and so, you know, this, these processes that we're talking about here today, I, I know there a lot of them are counterintuitive, but if if the entrepreneurs and, and the folks listening to this interview will will take the time to really adopt some of this stuff, I think that it will really help them. Well, I, I hope everybody listening realizes that what you just heard is just one of the most enormous value bombs we've had on here in a while, just from a business perspective. You know, over my career, I don't even know how many hundreds of millions of dollars of stuff that I've sold. Uh, but I've never felt like I had to sell something or close somebody. It's always been from this perspective. And I had some great mentorship, just like your daughter has with you, Randy. But if you come at it of a from a perspective, right? If uh, especially here, you know, as believers, you know, from the from the perspective of servant leadership, you know, this person has a problem, and you authentically want to add value, you want to have impact, you want to help them solve the problem, you want to help them think through the, you know, the issue that they have. And, you know, sometimes what the problem that they have is not what I have to offer is not always the best fit. And I will very clearly tell people that and say, you know what, this would be a better fit. I'll even introduce somebody at another company. Uh, if what the problem that they have is is not really what I am suited to solve with my expertise and my skills. But if you really focus on serving that person and understanding them and their need and just doing it with your integrity, then 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 people then you're really not selling. What you're doing is you're solving problems for people and you're getting paid to do it. Very well said. Yeah. And you know the uh, when when it when it comes to the to the value component when the faith component in this entire process, um, you know that's that's very very important, John. You know what you just went through because um, you know every morning you got to be able to get up and you got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and you know you got to be able to you know have your conversation with Christ and you know you've got to be in integrity and um, you know. There's been many, many times in, in my career where I've looked at a client and said, you know what, we're just not a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I could force this in here and I could I could probably, you know, uh, make a lot of money doing it, but we're not a good fit. And and, you know, the few times in my career where I've actually gone ahead and done it and said, you know what, we can make this work. It, it never turns out well. It, you know, it down the road, it's evident that it's not a good fit. And now everybody spent a lot of money and put in a lot of time and all you do is really damage relationships. And um, the other thing too that I, that I find amazing is when, when you're on the sales side of the table, uh, you know, if you're willing to say no and you're willing to act in the client's best interest, it's, it's really unbelievable how oftentimes that person on the other side of the table will go out of their way to see if they can do business with you. If not, then somewhere down the road. Yeah, no doubt. And I think some of those people that I've talked out of working with me have also become some of my biggest advocates in the marketplace and in their spheres of influence. Yeah, absolutely. So as we wrap up here, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening. Uh, You know, I had one question for you. A lot of people out there, you know, they're, they're trying to bootstrap something. They're, you know, they don't have a lot of either access to capital or disposable capital. 
And I'm just thinking of, you know, what are some of the questions when you're teaching down at SMU, this entrepreneurship, for people that are really are in a spot where they have to bootstrap this idea that they have? What what are some, what's the advice you give them? Uh, you know, over the years, um, you know, the bigger questions are, you know, how do you raise capital? Yep. You know, we've, we've, uh, we've been blessed. We've raised, you know, a lot of money, uh, you know, over the past decade, probably 500, 600 million dollars for our oil and gas deals. Um, it, you know, the answer to how do you raise money is what we've been talking about. Understand that if you're raising capital, it is a sale and, and you're actually selling a part of your company to get that capital. And you need to go through the same process that we just discussed because you need to understand what your ideal account profile looks like for a capital source. Not all capital is the same and different stages of a company oftentimes will require different types of capital and different capital sources. And you also as an entrepreneur you want to, you know, kind of, you know, take you know, do a gut check and under and, and really ask yourself how much um, oversight and, 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 you know, and rigor you want, uh, because, you know, venture capital or private equity institutional capital has a lot of, a lot of demands that come with it that are going to take you away from running your business. Um, in the early days, you know, when you first started things, friends and family are often a great source of capital, you know, in between the two, there, are, there are often, you know, high net worth individuals or family offices that, that can provide you larger chunks of capital, but just don't have, you know, that that rigor that's going to come with institutional money. But just really understand it's a sale. It's it's like anything else you're going to sell. On the other side is a buyer and they have a they have needs and wants and they have decision processes that they have to go through. And um, you have a product. The, the, the difference is, is the product here is equity in your company typically, right? Yeah. Um, so that's a big one. The other one is, um, you know, I get a lot is how do you how do you hire people? How do you go? How do you go and recruit top talent into a small company? And, you know, how do you how do you get that done? Um, and the first thing I want to I want to explain about this is that, um, you know, you think about the process we've discussed today. And, you know, you're, you're going to start and you're going to have an idea, you're going to refine it, you're going to take it to market, you're going to refine it, and you're going to go through these pivot points, right? Um, the thing that I think is really hard to do as an entrepreneur, and it's a very difficult concept to get your head around, is that when you're very early stage, it's very unlikely that people you're going to hire when you're just starting are going to be the same people that are going to be with you when you get to market expansion or beyond, that's very atypical. And what I like to do is try and hire for the next 18 months. Uh, what are my needs for the next 18 months? What do I really need to do to get from point A to point B? And um, what you'll find is that you can hire very specific skill sets, probably save yourself a little bit of money doing it. Um, and, you know, you got to be willing also, I think, if you're going to really get, a, you know, A-plus talent, you're going to have to be willing to give up a little bit of the company in terms of, you know, either stock grants or stock options or things of that nature. But instead of trying to hire somebody that, you know, you think is going to be with you the next five years until you, you know, become a billion dollar revenue company, um, I, I think that's I think that's very difficult to do. And it sets you up for a lot of heartache. Uh, again, think about the next objective. 
you know, the next 12, 18, maybe 24 months? What skill set do I need in any particular position to get me from, from you know, point A to point B? Um, and you don't even have to hire them. Um, you know, we've been able to expand with uh, everybody that works with me now, except for two people, are all on 1099 because they have very specific skill sets that we need right now, including my 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 executive assistant is uh, basically a virtual assistant. And my gosh, I wish I would have hired her two years earlier, Randy, but she has freed up so much time in my calendar to focus on what I am really good at. So th this is really great advice. Yeah. So, you know, in the the bulk of the other questions I get are, are, are around, you know, the process. How do you get from you know, where you're you're starting something and you're configuring it, then you're taking it to market and you're refining it. And we've we've covered a lot of that. And then of course the sales stuff. Um, so I, I think we've we've covered a pretty fair amount here in an hour. Yeah. So you know as we wrap up, just any final thoughts for people that have been listening to us uh, as you've been sharing this, Randy? Um yeah. Uh, as a as a final thought, I think there's two things. First of all, um, you know, have faith. And there, there are times as an entrepreneur, it gets very dark and it's very lonely. Um, and you're, you know, the second point is, is that when it gets dark and it gets lonely, um, you know, reach, reach out, you know, you know, say your prayers, reach out to Christ, reach out to friends. And lastly, just don't quit. Um, just keep going. You know, there's, um, there's, there's always going to be obstacles and you know success in this game is just continuing to move forward and overcoming the obstacles and just not quitting that is awesome and that is great advice and just thank you so much for your mentorship your friendship your coaching uh to everybody listening and for myself over the years randy you are just a special man love you and really appreciate you my friend likewise john thank you so much for uh for having me on i uh I really appreciate it and uh, hope, hope we help a lot of people. Me too. Thanks for listening to Eternal Leadership. Be sure to check the summary of this MP3 for any important links and a link to the show notes for this episode. This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Halftime Institute. In 1994, Bob Buford penned the book Halftime, moving from success to significance. And in the more than 20 years since then, more than three quarters of a million copies have been sold. It's touched baby boomers in the 90s, and it's now touching the lives of both Gen Xers who are in that midlife season asking, is this all there is? As well as baby boomers who are searching for significance in retirement. To get a free copy of the book, just go to eternalleadership.com slash halftime. And after you read it, if you have any questions, you can have a no obligation one hour of halftime coaching. Eternalleadership.com slash halftime. You can't beat getting a free bestseller. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.